This is a Reconstructionist radio production with lrnteach.com. Please visit kyber.org to download or purchase this book. Beale Worship, Ancient and Modern, 2001. Stephen C. Perks, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England. Narrated by Nathan F. Conkey. Section 3. Some Examples of Syncretism. As examples for illustrating this point, I want to look at three areas of life in which secular humanism impinges very significantly on the evangelical understanding of the Christian faith. Indeed, one could say that probably most evangelicals in Britain today follow the religion of secular humanism throughout most of their lives. Christianity is merely a cult for them, their personal worship hobby. In terms of their understanding of life beyond the four walls of the church and issues that particularly relate to the ministry of the church, that is, quote, spiritual, end quote, issues, secular humanism is the religion that dominates their lives. It is the religion of secular humanism in terms of which they live and move and have their being. 1. Evolution and Science The first area I want to discuss is science, and in particular, evolution. I know that the evangelical world is split over the issue of evolution, and although many evangelicals are evolutionists, a great many are not, and that there has been a concerted effort by many evangelicals to combat the effects of evolutionary theory. However, there are two points that need to be made about this, and what I have to say goes beyond the specific theory of evolution. First, it is not true that all evangelicals, not even all conservative evangelicals, reject the theory of evolution. Many evangelicals find the lack of intellectual respectability that rejection of evolution brings with it among secular humanists unacceptable. They believe that they can be faithful to the scriptures and, at the same time, accept the findings of science, or rather what secular humanists claim are the findings of science. Evolution, of course, is not a scientific theory. It is a religion defined and defended by faith, not fact although it is generally accepted by non-believers and by many evangelicals, that it is a scientific theory. As a result, quote, theistic evolution, end quote, a hybrid religion, if ever there was one, is now very common among evangelicals. Second, however, there is more to this than meets the eye initially, because the presuppositions that underpin this compromise with secular humanism are very often accepted even by those Christians who reject this specific theory of evolution. Creationists themselves often accept the epistemological assumptions and presuppositions upon which the theory of evolution rests, and this means, unfortunately, that they are fighting the evolutionists on their own terms. The secular humanist conception of what constitutes, quote, science, end quote, sets the terms of engagement and the rules of the debate, and creationists unwittingly follow. But this is a battle that creationists will never win while this is the case. What do I mean? The assumption underpinning much creationist literature and debate is the neutrality of the scientific method as conceived and articulated by the secular humanist scientific establishment. 
In other words, the assumption underpinning the creationist argument is the same as that underpinning the evolutionist argument, namely, the neutrality of the facts, the idea that facts speak for themselves, and that when all the facts are made available, reasonable men will accept the evidence presented by the facts. All we have to do to prove the case against evolution is to amass enough evidence of the creationist position, and people will have to accept it as the truth. Why? Because, quote, science, end quote, that is, knowledge collected by means of the scientific process, explains everything correctly. In other words, autonomous human reason divorced from the presupposition that everything in the cosmos finds its meaning in terms of the creative act of the God of the Christian scriptures can explain the whole of existence. I am not speaking here about the beliefs of creationists regarding the creation, but about their acceptance of the secular humanist concept of the neutrality of the scientific method. In accepting this, creationists are trying to beat secular humanists at their own game. Autonomous, that is, religiously neutral, science. But this is naive. Science does not explain everything. In fact, it explains nothing independently of a set of religious presuppositions that give context and meaning to the scientists' understanding of the facts. The debate between evolution and creation is not a debate between faith and fact. It is a debate between two contradictory faiths about how the facts are interpreted. Abraham Kuyper stated this important truth in the following way, quote, Not faith and science, therefore, but two scientific systems, or, if you choose, two scientific elaborations are opposed to each other, each having its own faith. Nor may it be said that it is here science which opposes theology, for we have to do with two absolute forms of science, both of which claim the whole domain of human knowledge, and both of which have a suggestion about the supreme being of their own as the point of departure for their worldview. But this is not obvious for the evolution-creation debate. Indeed, there are now quote, scientific creationists end quote, who do not claim to base their approach to this issue on the witness of scripture at all, but explicitly claim to deal with the issue on the merits of the quote, scientific end quote, case by itself. This is futile, because, in reality, what is involved in such an approach is not an attempt to settle a debate in terms of hard scientific fact, but rather a capitulation to the religious presuppositions of secular humanism. The facts do not speak for themselves. They are always interpreted, spoken about by human beings with theories about the nature and meaning of life that are necessarily religious, and this is so for the secular humanist, no less than for the Christian. And as far as our witness to the non-believer concerning the creation goes, Scripture does not tell us that we know the world was created by God because the evidence shows this to be the case. It does not tell us that the, quote, scientific, unquote, method, as conceived by secular humanism, provides the creation of the universe ex nihilo by the God of the Bible. Rather, it tells us that by faith we know that the worlds were created, Hebrews 11.3. In other words, faith 
is the foundation of true knowledge, and therefore, no matter how much evidence we put before the non-believer, he will not accept the creationist position. He will always find a reason to reject it. His faith, that is, his denial of the existence of the God of the Bible, and his commitment to interpreting all things in terms of this denial, means that he cannot accept the, quote, facts, end quote, that the creationists put before him. That is, the creationist interpretation of the facts, without first converting to the Christian faith. While he remains in his sin, he will always interpret the facts in a different way. This is how original sin affects the way that he reasons about the world. Much of the creationist approach assumes the validity of secular humanist presuppositions about what constitutes a proper scientific method. Namely, that we can ascertain the truth by examining the facts in terms of neutral, that is, autonomous, rational principles without reference to the God who created the cosmos and whose definitive interpretation of the facts is absolutely essential to a correct understanding of it. Yet, secular humanism is a religion. This means that we fail to understand the importance of our faith for the scientific enterprise. The secular humanist conception of the scientific method assumes that the facts, interpreted without reference to God, that is, knowledge as conceived by autonomous human reasoning, should be the foundation of faith, for example, belief in creation ex nihilo by the God of the Bible. The Bible puts it exactly the other way round. It tells us that faith is the foundation of knowledge. Hebrews 11.3, quote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, end quote. Proverbs 1.7 The secular humanist theory of science is the very essence of original sin, namely, the idea that man will determine for himself what constitutes truth without reference to God and his word. It is folly for Christians to follow this method. My purpose here is not to criticise the biblical doctrine of creation, but I am critical of the epistemological method that creationists often use. Because, in principle, this method concedes the whole argument to the secular humanist before any, quote, facts, end quote, have been discussed. This is a point about how we know what we know, the theory of knowledge. And while Christians are misled about what the correct, the Christian theory of knowledge is, they will remain the underdog in the debate about evolution, creation. And in that debate, feel, unwittingly no doubt, to give all the glory to God. But the problem does not stop with the evolution-creation debate. While this incorrect secular humanist theory of knowledge is accepted by Christians, as it generally is, it will continue to have an effect on all other areas of knowledge, areas that are less obviously related to issues of Christian belief, yet that are no less important for the practice of the Christian life. And this brings me to my second point of illustration of evangelical compromise with secular humanism. 2. Education The evangelical compromise with secular humanist education is perhaps the most serious of all. There are three reasons for this. First, secular education operates in terms of the same religious presupposition that underpins the theory of evolution and all other secular humanist science, namely the belief that the world exists and can be understood without reference to God 
and his creative act as the source of all meaning, this religious presupposition is in principle a denial of the God of the Bible and an assertion of human autonomy from God. It is this presupposition that lies at the heart of original sin, namely the belief that man can determine for himself what constitutes truth without reference to God's word. This presupposition underpins secular humanism in all areas. Secular humanism is a religion, therefore, that directly and in principle contradicts the Christian faith and secular education in all subjects proceeds upon this religious presupposition. Of course, the secular humanist may well accept the validity of the question, quote, does God exist, end quote. He may well be prepared to investigate the possibility that God exists, and he may even say that he is prepared to accept the existence of God, if it can be proved. It may seem, therefore, that secular humanism is not, in principle, contrary to the Christian faith, that it is prepared to give Christianity a fair hearing. But we must not be misled by this argument, which is based on the belief that it is possible for man to engage in reasoning that is religiously neutral in order to determine what the truth is. This is a religious presupposition about the nature of man and the nature of reality. It is this religious presupposition that underpins the secular humanist theory of knowledge, and it is the secular humanist theory of knowledge that is at the heart of original sin, that is, the sin to determine for oneself what constitutes truth without reference to God and his word. Therefore, the question itself, does God exist, in principle denies the existence of the Christian God. Any God that is the object of such an inquiry cannot be the God of the Bible, but only a God of man's own making. The God presupposed by this question is not the God of the Christian faith, because the God of the Christian faith is the God who cannot possibly not exist. This may seem a subtle point, but it is an essential distinction. Secular humanists may accept a God after their own making, a God made in the image of man. But any such God is an idol, not the God of Scripture. To ask the question, does God exist, is in principle to deny the God of the Bible at the outset, because God is the source of all possibility, not the product of it. God stands behind all that is possible. It is not possible that the God of the Bible exists. It is necessarily the case that he exists. Nothing else would be possible without the God of the Bible. This point is essential to our understanding of reality, and therefore it must be an absolute presupposition of the Christian theory of knowledge and of all true science, all knowledge. But this is the very antithesis of the secular humanist theory of knowledge. The differences between the secular humanist and Christian theories of knowledge are not minor matters, disagreements about the meaning of a few things, different interpretations of matters that we do not have enough evidence about to make better judgments on. It is not merely that we disagree over, quote, spiritual, unquote, matters. The difference between secular humanism and Christianity is a difference that exists at the most profound level and colours the whole of human knowledge in life. The two systems are, 
as Abraham Kuyper argued, diametrically opposed in principle. Quote, These two systems are not relative opponents walking together halfway and further on, peaceably suffering one another to choose different paths. But they are both in earnest, disputing with one another the whole domain of life, and I cannot desist from the constant endeavour to pull down to the ground the entire edifice of their respective controverted assertions, all the supports included, upon which their assertions rest. If they did not try this, they would thereby show on both sides that they did not honestly believe in their point of departure, that they were no serious combatants, and that they did not understand the primordial demand of science, which, of course, claims unity of conception. End quote. It is folly, therefore, for Christians to imagine that they can subject their children to a secular humanist education without it having the most profound effect on their understanding of life and on their understanding of the Christian faith. Second, the secular state schooling system is responsible, that is, claims to be responsible, and requires its teachers to be responsible for the intellectual, physical, moral and spiritual development of the child. And this development takes place in terms of the secular humanist presupposition that the world exists and can be understood without reference to God or his word. In other words, what the child gets in school is a complete worldview, a complete indoctrination in terms of a religion that denies the God of the Bible in principle. The child does not merely get lessons in specific subjects from a religiously neutral point of view. Secular humanism claims to be religiously neutral, but such neutrality is impossible. The education the child gets at school takes place in terms of the religion of secular humanism, a religion that, in principle and practice, denies the God of the Bible. This is an education in terms of a complete worldview. And the socialization of Christian children in the secular humanist society of the school makes it very difficult for Christian parents to break the intellectual and spiritual mould that Christian children are cast into by the secular schooling system. The school provides the whole ethos for their understanding of life. The state claims these children, and in the school it moulds them into its own image, an image that denies that man was created in God's image. This does not mean that teachers in state schools are constantly denying outright that the Christian God exists or are constantly contradicting the truth of the Christian faith directly. That would not work nearly as well in any case. The point is, not that teachers deliberately set out to deny the Christian faith, though of course many do deny the faith. The problem exists at a more foundational level than this, the level of assumption and presupposition about the nature and meaning of reality itself. And because these assumptions are subliminal, they do not need to be articulated in an explicit way in order to be effective in shaping one's understanding. In fact, a worldview works more effectively at the level of presupposition, subliminally. Most teachers would probably not think of articulating their religious assumptions directly in the course of teaching maths, music, English or science, for instance. But when teaching these subjects, their understanding of them will still be guided by their religious assumptions. For example, secular humanist assumptions, which operate below the level of critical thought most of the time. 
It is because the denial of God exists at this subliminal, pre-critical level, at least most of the time, that it is so effective. If we deny the faith outright to a believer, he will disregard the arguments we put up against the existence of God, or will find fault with them. But if we get the believer to accept unwittingly a set of assumptions or presuppositions that deny the faith implicitly and teach him to think about most areas of life in terms of these assumptions, the result will be that in his thought life and in his actions he will, without realising it, deny the God of the Christian faith in all those areas where he is not aware of the conflict and, given the narrow understanding of the gospel among evangelicals, the areas where these assumptions will operate will be far-reaching. He will be a practising secular humanist, despite his profession of faith in Christ as saviour of his soul. In fact, he may well be a convinced and consistent secular humanist throughout most of his life, the exception being in those areas that he regards as spiritual. This will only confirm his understanding of the faith as confined to a limited sphere, defined not by God's word, but by the philosophy, the worldview of secular humanism, which will be the religion in terms of which he lives his life most of the time. And this is just what has happened. This is why evangelicals are usually dualists in their faith. They split reality up into the spiritual and the secular. God is relevant to the former, but not to the latter, and the scriptures are read in terms of this assumption, this false dichotomy. Even Christian school teachers, therefore, are often not immune from secular humanist assumptions about life, and in their own teaching, they unwittingly espouse the secular humanist worldview. This situation is insidious. One cannot subject one's children to such an education and, at the same time, protect them from the influence of these secular humanist presuppositions. Their worldview will be influenced by the religion of secular humanism that they imbibe at school. If they become Christians, they will still hold to a hybrid form of religion, a form of Christianity heavily compromised with secular humanism. One may get one's children into a Church of England school or even a private school where there is a nominal commitment to the Christian faith. But even these will most likely operate in terms of a dualistic understanding of the faith, and therefore in terms of the kind of worldview that is adopted and an understanding of life generally, their education will be a secular humanist education. The education system in Britain, in the private as well as the state sector, is for the most part intimately tied up with the religion of secular humanism. Our education system is a secular humanist system. Third, the compromise with secular humanism in the education of their children on the part of Christians has a long-term effect that seriously weakens the influence of the Christian faith in society. While Christians remain tied to the secular education system, they leave a legacy of syncretism for future generations. Because Christian children imbibe subliminally the worldview of secular humanism at school, reinforced through the media, television, etc., and through socialization in the secular humanist peer group, their spiritual immune system, so to speak, is seriously damaged. Outside of specifically spiritual matters that might get discussed at home or in church, they cannot distinguish between Christianity and secular humanism. They cannot discern what it means to be a Christian and how this differs from being a secular humanist in most things, any more than the ancient Israelite 
could distinguish between the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal, because the worldview they have imbibed, that is, secular humanism, moulds their understanding of the Christian faith in terms of its basic presuppositions about the nature and meaning of life. They are incapable of making the necessary distinctions. They are held captive by a form of hybrid religion. If they ever realise there is a problem, they'll find it hard work to sort the problem out, to rid themselves of their secular humanistic worldview. But the probability is that they will never become conscious of the problem. This is why the Baal worship went on for so long in ancient Israel. It got ingrained in the nation's way of thinking at the folk level. Reforms in Jerusalem among the priests and kings barely touched how the people lived at the local level. And so it is with evangelicals today. Their children get no further than their parents. But secular humanist culture does not stand still. It moves on, pushes forward, relentlessly overturning the residue of the Christian virtues in society and narrowing even further the Christian's understanding of the scope of the Christian faith. Because the Christian accepts the basic presuppositions of secular humanism, he fails to resist the inroads that secular humanism makes on the way he thinks and the way he lives. As a result, the influence of the Christian religion declines further and the repaganization of our society continues without restraint. The relationship between the growth of secular humanism and the decline of Christianity in our society is inversely proportionate. And this can be seen not only in the world, but in the church as well. Because of its ascendancy, this secular humanist worldview dominates far more than the scientific establishment and the education system, however. And this brings me to my final point of illustration. 3. Totalitarianism or statism. The modern reliance on state education is just one example of a more widespread problem, namely the dependence of society upon an ever-growing state. This manifests itself in many ways. But perhaps the two most obvious sacred cause of this religion are the education system and the National Health Service. We live in a society today in which the state is growing exponentially in size. It has come to dominate our society. This is so in most areas of life. For example, the modern state spends going on for 50% of the GNP, gross national product, not only in politics but in education, health, the economy, the family, for example state welfare, entertainment and the media, licences etc., even in the leisure and sporting world, for example, the ban on fox hunting. The state exercises a dominating influence by direct control and regulation, and also through the indirect influence it has over society, for example, through the spending power it can exert and its ability to curtail activities it considers undesirable through taxation and licensing. The state is now virtually all-controlling. In fact, In principle, it claims complete control, whether or not it chooses always to exercise that control. There is no area of life where the state is not perceived to be competent to act and regulate for the life of the individual and society. This bloated and overweening state is not a benign influence in society. The state has achieved this position of dominance in society by restricting individual freedom and responsibility, 
and by the overthrow of much of our traditional common law understanding of how society should be governed, that is, by the rule of law. This abolition of freedom and responsibility is morally deleterious. In relieving people of their freedom and their individual, family and social responsibilities, the state also makes virtue obsolete. The state has become so big and its influence so pervasive that there are virtually no areas of life now where its influence is not determinative of the way we live in some measure. But in relieving us of our liberty, it relieves us also of our duty, and this leaves us with a social ethic that lacks any real virtue. After all, if I am no longer responsible for helping my neighbour because the state does it for me, I no longer have the opportunity to practice the Christian virtues, and that means that I no longer have the opportunity to practice the Christian faith in its fullness. For example, if I am taxed so heavily by the state in order to support its own secular humanist welfare programs that I barely have enough money left to take care of my family without becoming dependent on the state, I lack the means necessary to help those less fortunate than myself, even if I have the desire to do so. In creating the modern secular humanist welfare system, the state has stripped people not only of their liberty and prosperity, but of their virtue as well. This has a very practical bearing on the Christian life and on the life of our society. The kind of society produced by an ethic of individual freedom, linked with a strong sense of individual, family and social responsibility, such as the social ethic of the Christian faith, is very different from that produced by the ethic of socialism, with its insistence on everyone's right to equality based on anonymous state welfare programmes. This can only be achieved by the overthrow of the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal by the state, which takes upon itself the right to play Robin Hood, a role the Bible never gives to the state. Even in church ministries, the deleterious influence of the state can be seen. For example, in one town where there is a small but growing down-and-out homeless problem, the leaders of a town centre evangelical church were approached about the possibility of providing some kind of Christian ministry to these people based on Christian worth ethics, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Their response was that there was already a programme run by another church that provided cheap meals for people, not what was being proposed in any case. When asked if it was a Christian programme, that is, run according to Christian principles, the response was that it was not possible to be overtly evangelistic, which again was not what was being asked about, though such ministries ought to be openly Christian, both in character and in terms of their operating principles, because the local council provides most of the funding. In other words, the ministry had to conform to regulations imposed by the local council that prohibited the proclamation of the gospel. This is absurd. Even church ministries are now being funded by the state. As the institution that funds these ministries, the state demand that they refrain from being overtly Christian or evangelistic. And Christians seem to think that they are fulfilling their responsibilities as individuals and as the church by supporting this sort of state-funded program. What does this say about the church today? It says we are compromised by our syncretism with the prevailing religion of the age, secular humanism, and by our infatuation with its chief idol, the modern state. Today, people in our society 
including Christians, for the most part, look to the state for most of those things that in a Christian society once you'd look to God for, including security, health, prosperity, peace, etc. In Britain, politicians are now telling us that it is the task of the state to make people happy. These things, the Bible tells us, are God's blessings upon an obedient people. But, as a nation, we no longer look to God for these things. Instead, we look to the all-powerful state, and we see the modern state as blessing us with its bounty in these things. In our nation, the state is seen as being there to provide society with all those blessings that we should look to God for. If this is not idolatry, it is difficult to say what is. We have turned the state into a religion, into an idol. And this is particularly a problem for Christians, among whom socialism, both as an ideology and as a way of life, is very strong. It is true, of course, that the state, that is the civil government, does have a legitimate sphere of operation. I am far from advocating any kind of social anarchy. The state is a God-ordained institution, but it has not been ordained by God to obliterate and usurp the functions of every other God-ordained institution, nor to relieve us of our liberty. Rather, it should exist to preserve our liberty under God and protect these other God-ordained institutions, for example the family and the church, so that they can serve God obediently according to his will. But this is not what the modern state does. Instead of doing this, it has virtually obliterated or usurped the legitimate functions of these other Goddardian institutions by its overweening control of society and the individual. As a result, its proper function, that of maintaining law and order according to a Christian understanding of justice, has been severely compromised. The modern state increasingly no longer delivers justice, is no longer a terror to those who do evil, Romans 13.4, but often indulges and supports evil deeds. Abortion is the most obscene and vicious example, but there are many others, including the indulgent treatment of criminals and persecution of innocent people who fall foul of government corruption and ideology as incarnated in excessive modern regulations. And this problem exists on just about every level of society, from the denial of free speech to abolition of the right to protect oneself against assault by a criminal. Instead of delivering justice, the modern state sees its role as delivering religiously neutral education, religiously neutral healthcare, religiously neutral welfare. But religious neutrality is impossible. What we get is secular humanist education, secular humanist healthcare, secular humanist welfare, and the religious values of the secular humanist state are increasingly being shown to contradict the values of the Christian faith. Instead of the freedom to live our lives under God and in service, practicing the Christian virtues, we have the all-controlling secular humanist state running our lives for us according to its own religious ideology. But this state conspicuously fails to deliver justice as understood in terms of the Christian worldview. In short, the modern secular state has become as much a god, an idol, to which people look even for fertility in the immoral NHS fertility clinics as any idol of the ancient world and our modern abortion and fertility clinics place as little value on the dignity of individual human life as did the fertility cults of the ancient world. Human sacrifice is practiced 
in both ancient and modern types of idolatry. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.